Yeah, a lot of crazy stuff happening in our world. And um, I'd encourage you to watch less news and read more of the word. Just, just saying, okay? And listen, listen to good teaching, whatever that takes, and spend time focusing on those kinds of things. Focusing on whatever things are lovely and of good repute. Um, and take time to spend time with, with God. This is the last sermon in the series about God's top ten. It's about relationship. The Ten Commandments were given to us as guidelines. First, on how to relate vertically, how to relate to God, and then how to relate to our fellow human beings, to people. Again, God is not this big bad guy up there somewhere who says to them, find out what they're doing for fun and make them stop. Our misperception is that fear is the rule. Fear of God, fear of the consequences of our actions, and fear that we're going to have to stop having fun, whatever we interpret that to be. People fear to make contact with God. The atheist who does not believe in God or the agnostic who believes God is irrelevant live in fear that whatever happens in life, they're basically on their own. The Christian lives in fear of making God angry by breaking the rules. Well, Christianity is not, let me see this again, is not about fear, it's about hope. It's about hope. Why? Because God first initiated contact with us not to punish us, but to love us. Understanding every effort he gives, everything that he does is an effort to reach out to us in love. He made personal contact with us first by coming in person as a baby born in a feeding trough. It's a Christmas story that we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks. God about making contact with people. And upon initiating the relationship, God then gave us guidelines or parameters that when followed make great relationship, makes for great relationships, not only with God, but with other human beings, with people. This message is commandment number 10. It's entitled, titled Covetous or Content. Covetous or Content. And I want us to turn to Exodus 20, verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 17, as we look at the last of the Ten Commandments today. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's start with the actual prohibition. The prohibition, Roman numeral one, is do not covet. Do not covet. This 10th commandment is all about something called desire. Desire. The Hebrew word for desire is hamad. Desire itself is a neutral word. It's neither good nor bad. Only when desire becomes misdirected or misused, desiring what belongs to somebody else, does it become wrong. So, Desire. Maxie Dunham writes, the Hebrew word for covet, hamad, is a neutral word that means desire or take pleasure in. Desire or take pleasure in. Desire directed in the wrong channel or desire that causes us to want something that belongs to another or desire that causes us to go after something to which we have no right, that's covetousness. And that's when it becomes 
sin. Let's say I don't own a house, and I really want a house, okay? But I don't want just any house. I want your house, okay? I desire your house so much that I will do pursue getting your house away from you. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get your house. It's not just wanting a house. It's wanting what someone else has, someone else's house. Hamad or covet means to desire earnestly or to long after. Walter Kaiser puts it this way. This commandment deals with man's inner heart and shows that none of the previous nine commandments could be observed merely from an external point or an external act. Kyle and Dallas observe, says, they say, this is directed against desiring or coveting as a root from which every sin against a neighbor springs. Every sin against our neighbor can spring from coveting. Powerful words. And you know what? Coveting happens on the inside. We can hide it. Who knows? Who knows when we're coveting? Nobody can see it, of course, except God. We're commanded not to covet our neighbor's house or household, all that belongs to our neighbor, our neighbor's wife or spouse, a neighbor's possessions. And in the original writing, this lists servants and livestock, which was the currency of the day. It was the currency of that day. And of course, we understand today that the word neighbor means any fellow human being, not just those who live next door, okay? Any other human being. And most of us, if we are truly honest, would rather have a person's house and possessions that live in a better neighborhood than ours, not just our neighbor, right? That would way it would be. Every other sin against people springs from coveting, murder, adultery, stealing, even bearing false witness. Coveting is so insidious and sneaky since it is hidden inside our heart. No one can see it. I can actually covet and still really look good because sin is on the heart. It's in the inside. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. That's why all the... The answer to all the problems in our culture today is not more laws. It's not laws that are stricter or stricter enforcement of laws. It's not harsher penalties and definitely not educating the mind. We need heart change. We need heart change. The inside. Romans 7, 7 to 8, we've looked at this passage numbers of times. It says, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not know what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. So it's the heart. Coveting starts in the heart and brings forth all kinds of evil actions, thoughts, words, and deeds. So the location of the problem is the heart, the inside of every one of us. Okay? So it's an inside job. Okay. But how does this problem start? How does it start? Let's look at Roman numeral two, the problem. The problem is something called dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. Alan Cole says, ultimately to desire and try to obtain the property of another is to be dissatisfied with what God has given and thus to show the lack of faith 
in his love. The root problem is dissatisfaction. A dissatisfaction with what we have in light of what others have. Okay? I'll never forget a, a television commercial. Some of you may have seen this. Capture this concept brilliantly. It shows a, a typical American neighborhood. Nice tree-lined streets with attractive homes up and down each street. And all the cars, every one of the cars parked and driving around this neighborhood looked identical. They looked like brown cardboard boxes. You remember that commercial? I don't know if you remember it. Just, you're, you're seeing all these cars. Every car looks like a brown cardboard box. They're driving around in boxes. Everyone seems happy, contented, smiling, and satisfied until into the neighborhood comes a sleek, modern, bright red automobile. Everyone turns and stares. The contrast is so obvious that the commercial says everybody will be dissatisfied with the ordinary square brown cardboard cars until they have gotten the new because they want now, they want the new red sleek automobile. Okay. It was a brilliant commercial. Brilliant. So what happens? Is that what we do? We cannot bear the thought of somebody else having something better or more than us. So it starts with the desire. We desire to be equal or better. The sequence begins. There's a sequence that happens. First is, I compare. I compare. Comparison. We first see it in our children, and they immediately compare the size of their cookie with that of their brother or sister. Theirs is bigger. Why, do they, why is theirs bigger? I, I compare my cookie with his cookie or her cookie. The bigger piece of pie or the candy or whatever it is. I compare. Coveting begins with I compare. Then it moves to I compete. I compete. As, as adults, we become much more sophisticated and learn how to disguise our coveting by labeling it competition or free enterprise. Some would call it Capitalism, whatever that is. Now, there's nothing wrong with good, stiff competition. We watched a couple games yesterday, uh, football games. The biggest one was the Washington Huskies against... <laughs> Sorry. I didn't get to see the Wisconsin game, but Wisconsin won. Okay, they beat Minnesota. The Washington Huskies, who did they play? Washington State. It's a cross count. And it was competition. There's nothing wrong with good competition, at least if your team wins. That's what we say. There's nothing wrong with stiff competition, free enterprise, or capitalism, as long as it's not birthed from a coveting heart. If you look back on the history of our country, the United States of America, we find dreams and ideals. Our nation's founders envisioned a country of plenty, wealth, and prosperity, where no one is poor, no one's hungry. Therefore, no one would covet. Right? Huh. Socialism and communism, on the other hand, envisioned a utopia where all were equal, sharing all things alike, where no one had any more than anyone else. All equal, all plenty, no poverty, no rich, no competition means no dissatisfaction and no coveting. 
right? It was very interesting. Our youngest daughter, Brianna, had a chance to work in Norway for three months. And Norway is a socialist country. And very different in many ways. We think of them as a modern country just like us. But there was a concept. It took her a while to, f- to figure out what this was. And she said, what, what is this concept that I keep seeing? They call it jante loven. Okay? I think that's pronounced right. Jante loven. And what it means is everyone is equal. No one is better than anyone else. And it permeates the culture. It's ingrained in the culture of socialism and Marxism. And you know what? It looks great on paper. Looks great on paper. Looks great in books. Everybody's equal. There's no, nobody's higher than the others. The problem, it doesn't work. Okay? Somehow, because of selfishness and corruption of the human heart, those with the power to bring equality for all seem to always want more for themselves. Okay? I think we see that. Look around the world. Communist Russia, China, Eastern Europe, North Korea all have a small, privileged and powerful elite. Of course, we don't see that in America, do we? My goodness. Talk about the exposure of corruption in the last five years. Amazing corruption. The powerful elite of the world trying to get it all for themselves. They say, we just want everybody to be equal. Okay? We want everybody to be equal. You won't own anything and you'll be happy but we're going to live in these mansions and do, yeah, whatever. Right. How about the utopia called a republic or democracy where free enterprise reigns and all have equal opportunity? Oh, okay. It's worked for most, or so it seemed. And it's produced the most prosperous and powerful nation in the history of mankind, the United States of America. But Joy Davidman writes this, and I quote, We in America have realized this dream. We are richer than any previous nation, well-fed and well-clothed to the point of wastefulness. Where a medieval woman kept a dress for a lifetime, our girls throw it away in a year because it's out of style. Where bygone French women devise a nourishing soup from the end of cheese, a crust of bread, half an onion, and some leftover meat broth, all many of us can think of when we see such, such a quick trip to the garbage can. And we are safer than any previous nation, safe to the point of softness. We fret about muggers on city streets, juvenile delinquents, corrupt politicians. But to our ancestors, dangerous streets and violent youth and wicked rulers were merely the hazards of life. And we live longer, healthier, better insured lives than people of previous nations. As far as material goods go, our earthly paradise has given us more, far more than any first progress worshippers ever dreamed possible. Yet, she writes, there's one indispensable condition of paradise lacking. We are not happy in the place. Nor, for that matter, can we honestly maintain that we are completely just and peaceful and loving in it. Wow. Hits a nail on the head. See, there's there's only one problem with abundance. We never have enough. We never have enough. We still want more. We've learned to identify happiness with wealth, but no one who identifies happiness with wealth ever has enough wealth. America lives in unparalleled 
prosperity, but we're restless and discontent. Why? We want more. So, letter C, I covet. I compare, I compete, and then I covet. How can we expect happiness from an insatiable appetite while no matter how much we have, we still want more? Still want more. Who is more covetous? The man with a million dollars or the man with 10 children? The answer, of course, is the man with a million dollars because the man with 10 children doesn't want any more. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has one of his characters in prison say, the happiness of incessant victory, the happiness of fulfilled desire, the happiness of success and total satiety, it, that is suffering, that is spiritual death. All we ever want in life is more. We think that in America, that when every person has whatever they need, no one will be driven to covetousness. And we'll say, wait a minute, I, you know, I've never coveted my neighbor's house. It's kind of a wreck anyway. My wife is far more attractive. No one has servants, and I wouldn't know what to do with a donkey or a cow or even if my neighbor had any. Well, the Tenth Commandment says, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Have you ever noticed that everyone always seems to have more of something than you? Everyone seems to have more of something than you. I don't want his house. I want his pool. I don't want his pool. I want his Porsche. I don't want his Porsche. I want his job. I don't want his job. I want his income. I don't, I don't want his income. I just want his position. I don't want his position. I just want his early retirement. I don't want her husband's early retirement. I just want her wardrobe. I don't want her wardrobe. I want her education. I want her circumstances, vacation trips or cruises. I just want her GPA or his SAT score. I want his friends or her popularity. I want his speed or her athleticism. I want her scholarship. I want his car. I want his talent. I want her looks. I want, I want, I want. It goes on forever and ever. Face it, sometimes we just want to live the other person's life. They have more than me. Might be the movie star, professional athlete, successful business acquaintance, relative, sister, brother, or neighbor. Neighbor. Coveting can include a house, a spouse, money, possessions, position, country club membership, or opportunity, personality, temperament, spiritual gifts, body. If I only had his looks, if I only had her slender shape, some people can eat anything and it doesn't affect them. I go into a bakery and take one deep breath and I gain five pounds. It's not fair. We covet. We covet. What's the root of all this coveting? This desiring of what others have for ourselves. Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction with what I have, what I am, where I am, what I'm doing. Discontentment and dissatisfaction produces envy, greed, and coveting. I compare, I compete, I covet. By the time most people reach their mid to late 40s, we've gone back to at least one of our class reunions. Usually we're in our 40s, high school reunion or, or, or college reunion. And as we look around at others where they are and compare, or we look at Facebook and watch all the trips they take, it's like, what? How'd they do that? Vacations, you know, whatever it is. We compare ourselves to them, think that we, we've come out in the short end. Some have made it in business, 
You may find, as I did when I went back to my reunion, some were presidents and vice presidents of major companies. Wow. We're driven to self-pity and second-guessing, thinking we somehow deserve more, easier, or more fulfilling. So is there, is there a solution to all of this? What is the counterbalance to coveting? Is there a counterbalance? How do we deal with coveting? The solution, number three, contentment. Contentment. 1 Timothy 6, 6-11 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Contentment. What are the guidelines? Letter A, be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Now, some speak of a sort of utopian equality and say, if we were all just equal, we'd be content. And we forget about the majority of the humanity are poor. Majority of humanity are poor. You look overseas, Bangladesh, India, Ethiopia, the Philippines. Dunham writes this. Listen to carefully. First, we convince ourselves that we have a sort of cosmic right to an equal share of good things of life. That's a fallacious idea, and it plays folly in our lives. There's no equality in talents, abilities, opportunities. There's not even equality of being in the right place at the right time. There's no cosmic right that is ours to have an equal share of what everybody else has. If you're prone to leaning in that direction, consider how you would feel if you were averaged out with the world's two billion starving people. He says, you see, we always want to be averaged up, not down. Up, not down. If we averaged all the people of the world out, we would move down, not up. Most people want equality for contentment and they want equality up with someone who has more, not less. There will always be someone with more and someone with less. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. What is he saying? God says, I am enough. I am enough. I am enough. We have the illusion that happiness comes from outside in rather than inside out. Maxie Dunham says, happiness is an inside job. We usually end up coveting that which can never make us happy, failing to realize that what matters most is not what becomes of us, but, but what we become. He says there are two ways to be rich. I like this. Two ways to be rich. One is to have a lot of possessions. The other is to have very few needs. A lot of possessions or very few needs. 
Be content with what you have. The second solution is, letter B, seek God first. Seek God first. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 31, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Often we seek God, not not for himself, but as our cosmic watchman who guards our possessions, or cosmic fairy godmother who gives us everything we want. All good things given to us are to be enjoyed. But we must not make enjoyment our goal. God is our goal. Joy Davidman says, there is, in the last analysis, only one way to stop covetousness and the destruction of body and soul that springs from covetousness. And that is to want God so much that we can't be bothered with inordinate wants for anything else. It always comes back to God. And the third counterbalance is to covetousness is letter C. Rely on Jesus Christ. Rely on Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And you know something? If the Apostle Paul had to rely on God's power to be content, why should I be embarrassed or apologize that I need God's help? Okay? He needed God's help to be content. It's okay that I, our power source, our strength to be content, is found in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot be content in our own strength. Again, it's dependent on God. There's a passage in Proverbs. I love this passage. It talks about contentment in an interesting and timeless way. Proverbs 37 to 9 says, Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Covetous or content? Where are you? And if you need help, remember, we can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives us strength. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown us your way to contentment. And I just pray, God, that we would move forward in that. I pray, God, that you identify things in us that keep us out of contentment. And I just pray, Father, that we would know and see your face, that we would realize it's all about God. In Jesus' name.